This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. I'm thrilled, actually, that, um, that we were able to hopefully shine a light on Alzheimer's disease. That's Julianne Moore accepting her Academy Award for her role in Still Alice, a film about a professor stricken with early-onset Alzheimer's. The whole world is hailing the attention that Hollywood is giving the disease. But is it the right kind of attention? I'll talk to Alzheimer's researcher Sherry Dupuis. Plus, it's something many Zoomers are familiar with. Packing up the belongings of a recently deceased parent can be an emotional journey full of self-discovery and a new appreciation of the complexity of a family. That inspired Plum Johnson to write the memoir, They Left Us Everything, and she'll join me today. But first... Here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. U.S. President Barack Obama has lashed out at American bankers and financial planners for not putting the investors' best interests first when it comes to retirement savings. In a speech given to AARP, Obama called on the Department of Labor to draw up a rule to protect people who save in IRAs, 401ks and other workplace retirement plans from hidden fees and expenses that may drain billions from their accounts. In Germany, a 94-year-old ex-SS medic has been charged with Nazi war crimes. The man, who cannot be named because of privacy laws, is alleged to have helped the Auschwitz concentration camp function in his role as a medical officer, and the charges link him to the deaths that occurred during his period of service from the 15th of August to the 14th of September 1944. Earlier this month, the German court also charged a 93-year-old man with 170,000 counts of accessory to murder on allegations that he served as an SS guard at the death camp. Imagine if instead of expensive plastic surgery or Botox, all it took to have youthful-looking skin was dark chocolate. That's what Cambridge University academics are claiming about the world's first beauty chocolate, which contains high levels of two powerful antioxidants. The creators of Esthachoc say that in a clinical trial of 50 to 60-year-olds, eating a 7.5-gram piece a day over three or four weeks boosted blood supply to the skin and reduced inflammation, making a visible difference. The chocolate's price, release date, and retailers will be officially unveiled at the upcoming Global Food Innovation Summit in London. Meanwhile, single Zoomer women are generally happier now than when they were in their mid-30s. That's according to a survey by Dell Webb, an American adult community developer. In their poll of single females over 55, 74% said they were either happier or as happy now as they were when they were 35. And 76% of the women said they felt younger than their age. 
I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. You're the last person I will love. You're the last face I will recall. Best of all, I'm not going to miss you. Alzheimer's disease was in the spotlight at last week's Academy Awards. Country star Tim McGraw stepped in for Glenn Campbell to perform his Oscar-nominated I'm Not Gonna Miss You, a song about the ravages of the disease. Campbell himself is in the late stages of Alzheimer's and unable to perform. So many people with this disease feel isolated and marginalized. And one of the wonderful things about movies is it makes us feel seen. and not alone. And people with Alzheimer's deserve to be seen so that we can find a cure. The song didn't win, but Julianne Moore picked up the Best Actress statuette for her portrayal of a professor with early-onset Alzheimer's. The nod from Hollywood will go far to raise awareness, but not everyone agrees this attention is the right kind. I reached Alzheimer's researcher Sherry Dupuis at the University of Waterloo. There are very few of us now who are untouched by uh, dementia in some way. So I think that it sort of reflects people's um, experiences, more and more people having more experiences with um, uh, people and relatives living with uh, disease causing some form of memory loss. The Oscars are like the popular culture touchstone. I mean, what do you think it means? Yeah, well, the unfortunate thing, I think, is that the image uh, reflected in popular culture tends to perpetuate this notion that dementia is only um, experienced in negative ways, that de- that sort of what we, uh, my colleagues and I call a tragedy discourse. So the tragedy is actually emphasized before anything else. And this is deeply troubling at so many levels because it continues to perpetuate um, this notion that people with dementia lose their sense of self. And uh, those of us in the culture change movement in dementia care really don't believe that's the case. And in fact, our humanity, our humanhood, our personhood continues until the day we die. Dementia and a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, you know, until and maybe even now, are things that people would try to hide. So isn't Mm -hmm. there something positive in the fact that it's kind of humanized and it's put out in public as something that's not shameful? I would say that there is, except that the majority of the depictions that we see reflected in uh, popular culture in the media only show the negative side. And when we talk to people with dementia about it, that is why they don't actually go and get that diagnosis um, sooner, because they know all too well the stigma that surrounds it, how they're reflected. It is progress, for sure, as long as the um, reflection that's out in the open is uh, a more fuller picture of dementia. How do you think art can challenge perceptions of dementia? It can um, help us to see people with dementia and their lives 
in different ways, in ways that we may not have seen before. For example, um, we brought together some people with dementia uh, when we were developing a new um, play called Cracked New Light on Dementia. We actually um, paired them up with our actors and some artists and asked them to um, to talk about what they want the wanted the world to know about them. They actually talked about the ways in which they continued to live and find meaning in their lives. And so some talked about new possibilities that their diagnosis brought to them that they don't feel they would have had if they hadn't got dementia. Some talked about how they continue to be supported in loving relationships. Some talked about the advocacy work they're doing to change the perception of dementia. I think what needs to be reflected is a broader perspective that would include not only the the negative tragedy around what and loss and sadness that's associated with dementia, but also that there are people with dementia who continue to find meaning and purpose in their lives despite dementia. And and we know that with people with other chronic illnesses that um, that they find meaning and purpose in their lives. I don't know that it's helpful to only see it as a tragedy. Okay, Sherry Dupuy, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I'm Libby Snymer and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. It's something many Zoomers have had to deal with, sorting through a lifetime's worth of belongings after a parent has passed away. The emotional journey is the subject of Plum Johnson's memoir, They Left Us Everything, and she'll join me next. It's a Zoomer rite of passage, packing up the family home after the last surviving parent passes away. That took Plum Johnson on an emotional journey that gave her a new understanding of her family relationships and her parents' legacy. Plum dropped by our studios to talk about her memoir, They Left Us Everything. I started off writing just it was simply what I thought was going to be a good night moon for adults for the children because I was packing up Mum's house. And we all loved that house so much that I didn't want to let it go. And then all of a sudden, when I started going through the memories... These other themes started cropping up, like mother-daughter relationship, and so the book became something quite different after that. You were your mother's caregiver, and and you say uh, in the book quite openly that towards the end, you couldn't wait for her to uh, depart this life. That's right. In fact, the opening set, the editor and I had this fight about the opening sentence in the book, because I had wanted it to be, I thought my mother would never die. <laughs> and the editor, who's very sweet, said, no, 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 that's, that's far too harsh. Um, how about putting, I thought my mother would never die. And so we had to do a compromise on it. But yeah, that's literally how I was feeling. And I was very worried when my book came out that I'd be vilified for those frank feelings um, by uh, other sweeter people. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that you were that <laughs> candid, to be honest. Uh, well, and in, in fact, over the past year, since the book's been out, I've had a lot of people tell me that I've written, written their story, that, that in fact they felt exactly the same way. So I don't feel so bad anymore. It's interesting. I mean, you're allowed to say, if somebody dies after a long and difficult situation, that you're relieved. You're allowed to say that. Yes, but, and but... I, I felt released more than relieved, I think. 
at the end. Yeah. So this is this is like a whole adventure in caregiving that perhaps we haven't heard about yet. I don't know anybody who isn't going through this right now or hasn't just finished going through it. Of the period of caregiving, which seems like this endless tunnel that you're in, and you actually don't know if you're going to survive it. You don't know if you're going to outlive your parents. That's, I mean, because it feels like maybe you aren't when you're in it. Um, because you don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know if you're, if you're in it for two weeks or six weeks or ten years or, in our case, 20 years. Um, and then you have all these guilt feelings because you feel like an undutiful, ungrateful daughter. Did the writing process help you resolve the mother-daughter relationship? It did, uh, but what resolved it even more was finding the the letters that my mother had written to my father in the house, and therefore getting to see my mother in a new light helped me sort of bridge the 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 tunnel that I'd been in for the last twenty years of her life. You and your siblings kind of divided up the responsibilities. Yes. According to what you were suited to doing, and you took it upon yourself to move into the house before a couple of family weddings yes. and then to clean it out. So what kind of a journey was that? That's um, a large part of what the book is about because it's what we found in the house that really changed my relationship with mum uh, and gave me kind of this understanding of what our narrative arc had been in the family, helped me understand where my family had come from, uh, why my parents had been the way they were, what had happened to us, and and also helped me understand who I was. So it was quite profound. What was the riddle of your family that needed explaining? Well, there were... That's a very good question, and I think there were lots of riddles. Um, some answers we knew already, but one of the things I could never understand, for example, was about why mum uh, clung so much to me when she was such an independent spirit and, um, and why she struggled so with our relationship, mother-daughter relationship. So we found 2,000 letters. There are all these letters addressed to her by her own mother, when she's five years old, six years old, eight, nine, ten, and I'm thinking, wait a second, um, that close-knit family that she came from produced this really absentee mother. How come? Her mother was writing her letters all this time. I never. She always told me what a wonderful relationship she'd had with her mother, and it wasn't until then that I realized that, sure— she did, but it's because it was on paper, most of it. Oh, so her, her, mother, her mother wasn't there? It wasn't... Her mother was off taking her oldest daughter to doctor's appointments. I mean, there were lots of children in the family, and mom was the youngest. But at that particular time, her mother was completely consumed with the oldest daughter's diabetes back in, you know, 19, I don't know, 18 on. And so she wasn't there. So she was writing letters, and mom was being raised by hired help and extended family members, and so, as were all her siblings. So I'm sure this wasn't um, you know, a harsh thing, but it just explained things a bit more to me about mom. You uh, describe finding stuff in pockets, and uh, there's one I remember where you find a dry cleaning receipt from 1953 in your mother's yeah, bathroom, and it, cleaners. and it moves you to tears. Yes, she, so she had all her coats, and we'd find lots of pocket litter. 
So Kleenex and doggy biscuits and all that sort of stuff. That's how I first started writing the memories of the book is because I would find things like the dry cleaner's receipt that you're referring to, the Langley's receipt for, you know, <clears throat> 30 cents for uh, having dad's shirts cleaned. And, and all of a sudden I remembered when she asked me to run up the street to get them for her early in the morning. Dad was rushing off for the train and needed, you know. Uh, so those kinds of memories I was starting to write down for the benefit of the grandchildren before I realized this was going to be a public book. It was a private recollection of memories. If there's one thing, what do you hope people will take away from this? This journey that we went through of sorting out my parents' things was actually a profound journey. It, it bonded us closer together, and it helped us discover all this stuff about our family. So I actually think you shouldn't worry, and I'm not going to worry. I'm going to leave all the stuff for my kids and to forgive yourself in the end because you do the best you can. Okay. Plum, thank you so much. Thank you. They Left Us Everything is published by the Penguin Group, and it's nominated for a 2015 RBC Taylor Prize. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. We'll take a quick break, and then it's back to celebrate the birthday of a man who helped invent rock and roll. That's Domino. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. It's time for your international arts datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City. You, you're driving me crazy. What did I do? What did I do? The legendary black singer and dancer Josephine Baker is the inspiration for a one-woman show starring Kush Jumbo. Josephine and I is at the Public Theater. In Los Angeles, see the first retrospective of California photographer Larry Salton, who died in 2009. The exhibition includes more than 200 photographs ranging from Salton's conceptual and collaborative works of the 1970s to his solo works in the following decades. Larry Salton, here and home, is at the L.A. County Museum of Art. To London, England, where Shakespeare in Love is a stage version of the Oscar-winning 1998 film of the same name. This is a behind-the-scenes backstage and bedroom romp adapted for the stage by Lee Hall from Mark Norman and Tom Stoppard's screenplay. It's at the Noel Coward Theatre. And in Athens, an exhibition features the Italian period of artist Domenicos Theotokopoulos. Organized around the 400th anniversary of his death, the display features a lifelike painting of a young boy in candlelight. It's at the Benaki Museum. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, Antoine Domino Jr., better known as Fats Domino, celebrated his 87th birthday. The American pianist, singer, and songwriter is credited as a pioneer of both pop and rock and roll music. Born and raised in New Orleans, his career began in the late 1940s when he began playing with local bands in the French Quarter. His 1950 single, The Fat Man, gave him national attention and is now considered to be one of the first rock and roll records. For the next few years, he released a number of successful singles, but it was a 1955 hit that made him a star. The song reached the top 40 Billboard charts and was the first of 37 of his songs to do so. It's since been covered by countless artists, including Pat Boone, whose version became a number one hit. But right now we'll hear the original as recorded by Fats Domino. Here is Ain't That a Shame. 
You made me cry when you said goodbye. Is that a shame? That was Fats Domino with Ain't That a Shame. Domino celebrated his 87th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandriel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.